0: Turn to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. You guys are all going to go buy 23andMe now, huh? Galatians, of course, you guys probably already know, was written by Paul the Apostle. Um, And let's just just start reading right off the bat. The the main verse that that I want to emphasize today is is Galatians 2.20. Let me read that to you, um, and then we'll begin from the the get-go, from the beginning. Galatians 2.20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer i who live but christ lives in me and the life which i now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me uh, i was reading some commentaries and they were saying that if there's any verse in the bible that you can choose to put on your tombstone or maybe for someone to write the verse of your life that as christians that should be the verse that should be the verse, and so we read here in verse one of Galatians chapter one: Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. I want you to notice something right off the bat, and I'm not going to get in depth because the main focus is going to be Galatians 2:20. But I want to kind of walk us through so that we can get the context of why Paul is writing to the church. In Galatia. Right off the bat, he addresses the purpose for the letter. He says, not from men, but from God. That the Christians in, in Galatia were turning from the true gospel. They were turning, in essence, from uh, God to, to man. Um, Galatians 3.3, 3, we read, Are you so foolish? This is Paul writing to the church. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit... Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? And so they had begun in the spirit of God. God touched them. That's the only way that we can be saved. If any of us here are saved, it was because God put his hand upon us. He knocked on the door of our heart and we responded to that, to that knock. But it was all God. He alone gets the glory. God had used Paul to plant the, the church in, in Galatia. So Paul here begins by emphasizing the fact that it was man, it wasn't man who was chosen to deliver the message. It was, it was God. And he reemphasized it again. Look at verse 11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not according to man. This word that you have before us, written in black and white, it's not, it's not just a book, guys. It's a living word. It's a love letter written to us from God. It was God breathed. Yes, man wrote it, but I like the way it was one described. It was like man had the pen, and he was writing it, but God's hand was on top of his hand, directing everything that was written. Verses 3 and 5, it says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. May we never forget what salvation is. Grace to you. Grace to me. In, in most of Paul's epistles and most of Paul's letters, you are always going to read Paul begin the letter by saying grace to you and peace from God. And some people can just say, well, that's just a salutation. That's just a way of opening a letter. But I don't, I don't believe so. I don't believe so because he wrote it in Romans 1.7, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 1, two, Philippians 1-2, Ephesians 1-2. And on and on and on. The reason why I believe he wrote it is that you cannot experience the peace of God until you have the grace of God. Some of us come to church and, and, and we're, we want to experience the peace of God in our lives. And we think that by going to church that somehow our situation is going to get better. And then we blame God when it doesn't, when in all reality your life will get better. It doesn't mean that your situation is going to be fixed, but you're going to see your situation in light of God's eyes for his purpose for that situation. And then and only then are you going to be able to experience peace. We could never experience peace before we experience grace. Grace is the central message of the gospel. You guys know that, right? Notice in verse, in verse 4, he says that he gave himself. Who's he? Christ. He gave himself for our sins that what? That he might deliver us. D- deliver us speaks of taking out, literally plucking us out. Plucking us out from the road to hell. It's It's mercy. And then he delivers us unto himself. He delivers us as a way for us to be able to go to him one day, to go to heaven. That's grace. He gives us a purpose in life. He gives us abundant living. That's grace. And that's the central message of the gospel. That's why in verse 5, it says that he and only he should get the glory. Look. At, let's read verses 6 through 9. It says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him, who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be a curse. And then he repeats himself. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, Let him be a curse. So the believers from Galatia were turning from the grace of God. And in doing so, they were turning from their source of power to their source of weakness. Their source of power was God. The source of weakness was themselves. Paul the Apostle says, I I, I marvel. That, That Greek word, it means to be in wonderment. It means to be in amazement. For us of us that speak Almani language, it means that Paul was tripping out. He was tripping out of the fact that these people were saved by God. God was doing a good work, and then, man, they just got taken off that road. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ. We have to understand something about Paul. Paul was a religious machine. He was a Jew on steroids, uh, trying to please God, trying to toe the line, trying to be the best by surpassing the rest. And I'm sure that that led to some exhaustion in his life. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt exhausted? God, I'm doing my best, but, uh, but I need desperately some rest. When we feel that way, guys, it's an indication that, that it's us that it's our own strength, that we're not following this model in Galatians 2.20, that we're trying to do things on our own. In John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, the people asked Jesus, in essence, how can we measure up? How can we do what we have to do to maintain a good relationship with you? to keep that open door policy of heaven and i love what jesus says and then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of god and jesus answered and said to them this is the work of god and that is what that you believe in him whom he sent that's the essence of the gospel that's one of the things that we cannot forget when we first come to christ man we're excited We read the Bible, and we're like, God says do that, and we do it. But eventually, we complicate things. We start looking at self, like Peter did, remember? Peter looked at self, and when he looked at self, he looked at the storm, and then he went under. But as he had his eyes on Jesus, he was walking on water. It wasn't until Paul found the truth that he experienced rest. Um, And that's why he couldn't understand why someone would desert that. Someone would leave that. Turning away, that's what that means. That means desertion. Uh, The ESV translation says, I'm astonished that you are quickly deserting him. That you're leaving Christ. Uh, Desertion means to transfer allegiance, and it's used for a soldier that goes from one side to another. Basically, a traitor. Judas Iscariot, right? Um... And I, I really believe, guys, that as I was thinking about this, as I was, as I was studying this, that, that that's our challenge, is as a church itself. The challenge of the church itself, breaking away from that sinful nature that is in every single one of us, and also self in the, in the fact that we become self-dependent, that we forget the message of the gospel, that we forget that God already won the, the, the war, that we forget that, 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 that we're not supposed to strain, but that we're supposed to allow God to work through us and in us. Verses 7 and 8, basically Paul is saying that, that there was some agents of the devil and, and, and anyone that tries to, 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 to stain any bit of the gospel, guys, even if they don't know it, Even if they're nice and they ride on bikes with white T-shirts and they're very, very polite and they wear black ties, they're agents of the devil because they're they're perverting the gospel. It's been described as this. You have this big old glass of chocolate milk, chocolate milk, vanilla milk, vanilla milk. Just milk, all right? And you got some cookies that, that you just took out of the oven and you're ready to drink that milk. And all of a sudden, a big old mosca flies into that glass the rest of it is just the top right i mean you remember right when you were like you drop something you're like five second rule but man i'll think of a mosca and you're like i don't know man especially when you got another half gallon in the fridge you're like stump it and serve yourself some more right well that's what happens that even if a little fly if a little bug slips into the gospel we have to be very very careful to protect it we have to be very, very careful that we understand the truth. Because if we don't, then we risk deserting that truth. So these, these agents of the devil, they, they, they were perverting the gospel. And, and I, I want us to know without a shadow of a doubt that there isn't different gospels. That's what he says, a different gospel. But he's not saying there's a different gospel. He's saying people are trying to come in with different gospels, but there's only one gospel. There's not the gospel of Muhammad or the gospel of Buddha, the gospel of the Mormons, the gospel of prosperity, or whatever other gospel someone throws at you. There's only one gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm reminded what Jesus says in John 14, 6. What did he say? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Except through me. That's the only gospel that's going to be able to pluck us out of hell. That's the only gospel that's going to be able to give us access to heaven, give us purpose, abundant living here in this life. This was the essential truth in Paul's life. That's what changed and transformed his life. It was the truth that liberated him from a life of exhaustion, the lie he was following trying to measure up, trying to be the best person that he could, trying to do his religious activities in order to please God, which only led him further into despair. And and I'll tell you this, if that's your life, if you're coming to church for that, if you said, hey, I came to church today, so I did my thing, that's a life of exhaustion. That's a life of tiredness. Uh, That's why in verses 8 and 9, Paul jealously emphasized very dramatically, I would say, that anyone, including the host of angels, the apostles, including himself, would preach any other gospel that they should be accursed. You know what that means? It means they should be sent to hell. He said something later on in in, in Galatians 5 where where these these people were trying to get the Galatian church to circumcise themselves, to do the works, right, in order to to say that they were saved, in order to say that they were doing the work needed to go to heaven. He says, let them cut themselves off. But here it seems like it's more drastic language. He says, let them go to hell because he was protecting the gospel. Verse 10, "For for do I now persuade man or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. Paul, we have to understand at this point, was hated. He was hated by the religious leaders. He was hated by the devil. Remember, in 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 the, in the, the Bible, where it says to 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 those people that were were per, per, pretending to be believers of God, they said, "I know Jesus." The demon said this. "I know Jesus. I know Paul, but who are you?" And they jumped on the man so hell hell knew about paul that's why you know he viewed himself as a as a bond servant you guys know the, the background of that right the mosaic law allowed a servant to become a bond servant voluntarily uh once a servant paid his debt um if if he loved his, his, his master, if he loved his life, if he saw that his master was good, in Exodus 21, 5 through 6, it says that he would tell his master, I love you, I don't want to go. And then his master would take him before the judges and then he would take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he would be a servant for life. That's who Paul considered himself to be. If, guys, we look at God... In that sense. I love my master. Then those things that he calls us to do. Even if they're hard. We're going to have joy. We're going to have power. We're going to have the ability to be able to do them. We're not going to serve him. Out of an obligation. We're going to serve him out of a privilege. We're going to serve him knowing. That it's our greatest honor. To be able to do so. Paul. He recognizes. He He saw God apart from the religious connotations that religion sometimes throws at us. And like it says in Psalm 34, 8, he tasted. He tasted and he saw that, that the Lord was good. That's what it says. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is a man who trusts in him. We have to remember that. Verses 11 through 14 says, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Again, reemphasizing that, right? For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Again, in verses 11 and 12, he, he repeats the message uh, that he originally brought to them, that, that this is not man's invention, but it's God's intervention. Christianity is God intervening in our lives and our world. Without Christianity, without the central message of the gospel, we would be in trouble we would be headed to hell. That's what the Bible teaches. In verses 13 and 14, Paul reminded them that that, that he used to be what? That he used to be an enemy of the church, a persecutor. Don't forget who I am, he's basically telling them here. I I was uh, covetous for position. Uh, I was a sell it for what I thought was the truth. I, I tried to destroy the church on a number of occasions. That was me. Remember that. I really think that Paul was on his way to be chief priest. He was being combed to be that. He was being brought up to probably be the head of the Judaism religion. But God, he got, God stepped in. He was blazing a path towards being the highest of religion. And it's interesting that once Paul came to Christ, he then considered himself not a chief in religiosity, but a chief of sinners. And I think that's one of the key things that we need to remember. Um, I have a lot of, of, of battles in my life, but, but alcoholism wasn't one of them. But I hear that when you go to like a, a program like AA, you're supposed to always declare yourself to be what? An alcoholic. Even if it's been 15 years, 20 years, I'm an alcoholic. And I think the same is true you know, for Christianity is I'm a sinner. I'm the chief of sinners. Remember that old saying, right, that like if you make it, you know, you're from Awani. Hey, dog, don't forget where you're from, all right? You know, don't forget us. Don't forget us. It's the same thing with us in Christianity. We never should forget where we came from, where God plucked us out of. Notice Paul didn't write, I used to be a chief sinner. He said, I am a chief of sinners. When God reminded Israel of the covenant he had made with them in Ezekiel 16, uh, 62 and 63, he said, I will establish my covenant with you. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame. When I provided you an atonement for all that you've done, says the Lord. So as long as we, we stay in that place of humility, as long as we stay in that place of love, we're going we're to be okay. Humility is what's needed. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget that situation where God called you out of. When God senses humility, he, he steps in with grace. For Paul was on the road, right, in Acts chapter 9, verse 6. It says, so he trembling and astonished says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Prior to that, he was a persecutor of the church. Prior to that, he was fighting. He was kicking against the goats, right? But once he said, trembling and astonished, Lord, what do you want me to do? I believe that moment, bam, God stepped in. Before that, God's a a gentleman, attention getter in our lives. He's going to allow situations to happen. Not that he's the author, but he's going to allow situations because we live in a fallen world to happen so that we would look up. But after that, he's a gracious savior. And we need to remember that. That's what we read next. Look at verses 15 through 17. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I may preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. First thing I want you to notice, look what it says. It pleased God. Do do you believe this? Do I believe this? Do we believe this? Or do we look at God as saying, Ay, 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 there's Henry. Hide, hide before he sees me. I guess I should save them. Ugh. No. That's the way I look at myself sometimes. That's the way I might look at you. That's the way you might look at yourself. But that's not how God looks at us. It says it pleases him, guys. Don't let that get lost. It wasn't just for Paul the Apostle because God knew that he was going to do amazing things and he was going to be obedient. It's for every single one of us. That's his heart. It pleases him. It means it brings delight to his heart to save us, to pluck us from the fire, just as it would please any of us to take our children out of danger, to take our children out of harm, to trade places with them if we could when they're going through pain and suffering. In Matthew 13, Jesus told two parables that you might be familiar with. The first one is the parable of the hidden treasures verse 44 of Matthew 13 says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Who's that field? We are. The very next parable is a parable of the pearl of great price. Verse 45 says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and bought it. Any ladies named Pearl here, by any chance? We're all Pearls, even the guys, man, even the brothers, right? We're Pearls. We're we're valuable gems in the eyes of God. And it says that he sold all that he had. What does that represent? He sold his son. The father sold his son. The father gave his son for that pearl, for us. Paul said that God stepped in, separated me from my mother's womb. I like the amplified version. That's Carlitos' favorite um, Bible translation. It says, but when he who had chosen and set me apart even before I was born and had called me by his grace, his undeserved favor and blessing saw fit and was pleased. God is calling every one of us, guys. If 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 you're a Christian today, if, if you're blood ba, it's because God was calling you. If you're here just because you're just like killing time or someone, you know, made you come, God is calling you. The question is not if God is calling you, but are you gonna answer? Do we want any part of him? Do we believe that he is good? Do we believe that what he did for us saves us. I was never an atheist growing up. My mother took me to church. It was a, a, a church uh, that involved a religion. Most of us came from that church. Um, so I always believed that there was a God, but guess what? I lived like an atheist in, in my rebellion, and my sin. Paul, of course, certainly wasn't an atheist. He was a Jew. He learned about God when he was yea little. But even though he wasn't an atheist, he lived like one. Through his religiosity, through his works mentality, through his anger, through his hate. Once separated by his ambition, to his hate, to his tradition, now simply but powerfully, he was separated unto God. Notice that it was a revelation Verses 16. He didn't say, hey, this is in my own strength, in my own authority. It was a revelation. And when God reveals himself to us, it's for salvation purposes, but it's, it's not just for revelation, it's for proclamation. He wants us then go, to go take the good news to those around us, to the world. He wants us to live out the good news in his strength by our lives so that we could be a living Testimony. You guys have heard that, right? That you might be the only Bible that someone ever cracks open. That you might be the only Bible that someone will ever read but and they're just simply reading your life. They're simply reading how you live, your attitudes, what you do when you get frustrated, what you do when trials come, who you turn to. That's true. Again, Paul wanting to make sure that the Galatians knew that this work in them was God and not Him. He said... When God got my attention, again in Acts chapter 9, I didn't run to man, I ran to him. Look at verses 18 through 24. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw no one of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by faith to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they were only hearing. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. The greatest act of obedience, I think, in the Bible is when God told Ananias, hey, you know that guy Saul? Go talk to him. What? I know you're God and you know everything, but did you forget who he is? And yet he did. And, and, and look at the difference that it made. Look at how he, he, instrumentally he was used in what we know Christianity to be because he's the one that went and ministered to Paul the Apostle. Paul, he was done with his desires to advance, his zealousness, his zealousness to crush, his stubbornness to his traditions. He said, I was unknown to these people where before he wanted to be known, he was zealous. He wanted to climb that religious ladder he says i was unknown to these people only my reputation preceded me and that so leads us to chapter two verse one we're going to read 10 verses all right then after 14 years i went up again to jerusalem think about that 14 years with barnabas and also took titus with me and i went up by revelation and communicated to them that the gospel which i preach among the gentiles but privately to those who were of reputation lest by any means i might run or had run in vain Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because the false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Verse 6, but from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man, for those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel th- for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, were the uncircumcised, were Gentiles. Except me, I'm 1% Jewish, remember? As the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, Perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they go to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. So think about that. Paul in Judaism was in the middle of the of the of the boom of Jerusalem. He was in the middle of the chaos. Of religion, of the hate, of the 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 being bound to the traditions and not understand, understanding the spirit, he was bound to that. But but now, as 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 Jesus came into him, he took a step back. He took a step back. He didn't immediately go to Jerusalem. In fact, it says that it was up to fourteen years. Where did he go? He went to Palm Springs, or whatever desert. You can think of. He went to the most, uh, you know, deserted place that you can think of. Why? Because he wanted to make sure that he spent time with God. That's how you know. That's how you know that God is working. That's how you know that God is planning. That's how you know the man or the woman that God wants to use. The man and woman that spends time with God. The, the man and the woman that waits upon God. The man and woman that says, God, I don't, I don't know how to do this but I'm open to whatever you lead me to do. I know you don't, you know, call the qualified. You qualified the cult. So 14 years, it took him to go. He was no longer blazing a trail. He was taking a step back. He was allowing God to work in him. It wasn't Paul's zealousness, but it was God's revelation. I told them go up, stay, wait, sit, stand, go. Verses three and five. He also wasn't led by man's perception of what was right. It wasn't religion driving him anymore. It was the the, the pure message of the gospel that was driving him. In, in verses six to ten, he tells us he wasn't a respecter of persons anymore. Even if it it was Peter, which we're going to see in a little bit. He was a bondservant of Christ. He only answered to Christ. Read verses 11 through 16 with me. It says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For certain men came from James who would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. So even that Barnabas, remember the guy that he brought with him, was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, remember his zealousness for the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles, not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. For the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Peter repeated this. This this was life-changing to Peter because later on he repeated the same message when he was called to the Gentiles. Paul had spent so much of his life living a lie that now he had the truth. And once we spend an eternity living in lies when we have the truth, you don't want to let go of it. And that should be the case. Believe me, in our walks, it gets hard. In our walks, we make the mistake of taking our eyes off of Christ and we start to compromise and we start to take off, taking our eyes off the centrality of the message that the war has already been won that God wants to do a work in and through us. Paul wouldn't let go of the truth, even if it meant rebuking someone as respected as the apostle Peter. That was an easy thing to do. Sometimes certain actions can challenge the message of the gospel. When they do, we have to knock those walls down. That's what, what Peter was doing. If you guys remember the gospels, as you read the gospels, don't you guys trip out that Jesus never really came down on sinners? You know, he, he, he dealt with a woman that was, that was you know, uh, um, caught in adultery. He didn't, like, you know, give her a whipping. In fact, he stood by her. He did tell her, go and sin no more. We've got to make sure that we, we, we get that right, and we're going to talk about it at the end. God, God cares about our walks because our walks are a representation of our relationship with him. But he didn't come down on sinners. Who would he come down on? Those who were misrepresenting the gospel, huh? Those that were the supposedly know it more. Those, the religious leaders that were misrepresenting him left and right. Peter, by his action here, was in essence communicating another gospel. And Paul would not have no part of it. How was Peter communicating another gospel? Well, he was playing the hypocrite. He was hanging out with with the people in Armani, you know, eating the tacos and the frijoles and just grubbing, right? Fellowshipping with us, listening to the oldies. But as soon as the people from Orange County came down, oh, no. You know, he, he, he pulled himself away. And so how does that hurt the gospel? Because it, 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 it sends a message that the gospel was only for certain people, that the gospel was only for the Jews and not for the Gentiles, which was the main reason that Paul was sent out as a ministry to the Gentiles. Paul would have no part in it. First Timothy 5.20 says, Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest may also fear. To me, that reinforces what he said in verse 10. For I do not persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. This action here reinforces that. Our lives just can't be... Talky-talkies, guys. We have to be walkie talkies It has to back up what we believe. Paul the Apostle backed up what he believed. When it's God and not man, we're going to see this type of courage. We're going to see this type of courage even in our own lives, even when we don't feel like we have it. We'll see it manifested in our lives because it's God working through us. This rebuke of, of, of Peter, it's straightforward. He didn't pull any punches. I'm sure he said it in love, but he said it. Think about that, guys. <laughs> I'm privileged to be able to go with Pastor Manny to uh, Calvary Chapel, Golden Springs, when they have the pastors. Um, I guess they're called like Bible, you know, studies. Pastor Rawl, you know, gets up and he gives a Bible study and he encourages us and he whips us and he does all kinds of things, right? But he he told that he was at at the gym with with another friend of his and they were both on like a treadmill, you know, uh, and and the man next to them on the treadmill said something uh, about uh, faith and so his friend looked over and says oh you know you're you're a believer and he's like yeah i'm a i'm a believer he's like oh cool you know that's awesome you know we're believers too and you know uh he's like well what church do you go to and he said you know saint mary and so they're like okay you know like he's a catholic And, and look i want right off the bat to know that there's many catholics that know the lord Okay? And as a church, when we talk about Catholicism, it's not to talk about Catholics, because that's many of our family members, huh? That's the church that we came from. It's to talk about the religion of Catholicism. It's to talk about the hierarchy, that, that, that even though it's written in the word, what they should teach are teaching a different gospel. And so when he says St. Peter, the guy says, oh, well, okay, cool. We go to Calvary Chapel, Golden Springs. He's like, oh, okay. And he's like, do you know uh, Pastor Raw?" Pastor Raul was right next to him, right? And he's like, I hate that guy. I hate him. And so Pastor Raul's like, I didn't say anything, you know, because I knew that as soon as my voice, you know, he has a distinctive voice. And he's like, really? Why do you hate him? He's like, because he's always talking about Catholics. And so, you know, they said, okay. Let's talk to him some more. And, And then eventually the guy goes, hey, well, you know, nice to meet you. My name is Frank, whatever the guy's name is. And Pastor Raul reached out his hand and he says, Nice to meet you. My name is Raw Reese. And the guy's like, you know, kind of stand standoffish. He's like, you know, he didn't believe him, right? And so they they went to the car, and Pastor Raw had some books that he had written, and they went and they they, um, they gave him the books, you know. And and uh, the guy goes, hey, so do you still believe that about you know, Pastor Raw? And and uh, uh, he goes, well, I don't know. He's like, how how do you feel about Catholicism? And P- Pastor Raw says, it's worse than I first said it was. So why am I telling you the story? Because he's zealous for the gospel, guys. He's zealous. He's not politically correct. The other day, you know, after church, Jane told me, came up to me, she says, oh, hey, there's a couple of guys, nice guys, in white, white collar shirts, black ties. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Standing in the front. Why are they standing in the front? Well, it turns out that they saw people praying, and they went, and they wanted to give them a card. They were trying to get them to go to their church. And though they're very nice guys, and I told them that, man, I I look at you guys and I think, wow, man, there's, there's some part of me that admires you guys because, you know, one of them was from Georgia, the other one was from Utah, they leave their families, they come out here alone, they're on bikes in Almani, that takes faith, okay? I said, but another part of me is grieved, because every time I see you in the streets, I know that you're pulling people away. From the true gospel. Now, they looked at me like, well, you're entitled to believe anything you want to believe. We have the true gospel. And so we're sitting there, you know, uh, a brother and I, you know, for about 15, 20 minutes, and they were stuck on what they believe. But I needed to tell them that. Just as Pastor Raul, it wasn't his intention to be rude, he needed to tell them that we need to have that. We need to have that jealousness of the gospel, guys. Because if we don't, then people are going to believe that the God of Muhammad is the God of Christianity, that the God of the Mormons is the God of Christianity. Even though when the Mormons are throwing it out there, they're saying, hey, Jesus is our Savior. We're saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. They say that. But then you dig in a little bit deeper, and now it, it, they just they go off. It's that mosca in the glass of milk. And we have to know, we have to know the central message of the gospel so that we can protect it so that we could be zealous not rude not mean but that we can protect it it's it's behavior that communicates that Christ is our main motivation and it's behavior that is seen in our lives it's a jealousy for the gospel of Jesus running through our veins do we get angry and grieve when we see the cults giving other gospels do we care do we defend the purity of the gospel no matter who it is that we're dealing with, whether it's family members that we love, but they say something that is off, do we, do we lovingly tell them the truth? Do we defend the gospel? Because unless they know the true gospel, they're not going to be saved. Paul could have said, That's Peter. He's one of the original apostles. He's OG. He's the head of the three, he's the future Pope. Just kidding. I'm not going to say anything to him. You could have thought, maybe Peter could help me climb the ladder of Christianity, but he didn't. Why? Because he was a bondservant of Jesus Christ and of him only. Romans 6.21, Paul wrote, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? And we need to ask ourselves that question. What fruit do we have of the things that we are now ashamed? Our life should be different. Our life should be lived out for the gospel. We should have that, that heart that when we run into people, the gospel is the main thing on our hearts. That's the way it was when we first got saved because we believed that it was the power of the gospel that saves into salvation. And then after that, we made it complicated. We brought ourselves into the picture. We didn't do it because we were afraid of rejection. We can't allow that to happen, guys. Paul emptied himself of all that he was prior to Christ because he knew that there was no fruit in anything but Jesus. Only despair. Verses 17 and 19. But if we, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, though, uh, I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. Uh, they... they Commentators that are a lot smaller, smarter than me say that this is a difficult verse to, to interpret. But with the way I look at it in my simplicity, I think that Paul seems to be dealing with the possible question if there's no law, if what you're saying is that we don't have to follow the law and pe- people are simply saved by faith, then what would compel a person to live a moral life? Well, that's exactly what I'm trying to get at. If we're trying to live a moral life based on our own strength, based on religion, based on what we think the law is, we're going to fail miserably. But if we allow God to come in and God to work through us, then it's just seamlessly going to happen. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but it'll happen. Romans 6, verses 1 through 3, says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul answered, Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? I believe Paul's answer is found in verse 19 and our principal verse, verse 20. Verse 19, for I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. What is it that you have to die of in order for God to live through you and through me? Paul. Tried to live a life for God. I believe that he was sincere. I believe that in all his works, all even the hate, even the destruction of the church, he was sincere. In fact, honestly guys, I believe that people that blow themselves in airplanes for the sake of their God are sincere. They're just sincerely wrong. He realized that everything he was doing was, was done in vain. That moment. When Jesus met him on the road. Whenever we allow the self to lead, it's always going to be in vanity. For Paul, as it is for many of the Jews in those days, his motivation was the law. He was trying to live his life by the letter. The way to behave, the way of walking. That's what a lot of us do. And we're exhausted by it. Second Corinthians 3.6, it says, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to come inside of us. The Bible tells us that we have no righteousness in us. Do you guys believe that? Do you believe that you're sinners saved by a righteous God and that you will remain a sinner even when you're cleansed? All of our righteousness is found in God. The Bible says our own righteousness is but a filthy rag. So that leads us to verse 20 and the central point of hopefully my message. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul said. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself me notice how he starts that magnificent verse and we can spend days just talking about the letter i there he says i he starts with himself paul is personalizing it there's no doubt about it have you ever heard someone say "Ooh, they gave me the evil eye well the true definition of the evil eye is i it's it's ourselves i has to die Henry Morris in his comments on Galatians 2:20 rightly said that here is the greatest secret of a Christ-honoring Christian life I have it already happened been crucified with Christ I I if more Christians started with that word one simple letter man God made it easy I instead of worrying about him or her or them how different would the church be? How different would the world be? It's been said that the chief aim of God is to glorify God, or the chief aim of man, excuse me, is to glorify God. The thing that, that we have to get right is if we're doing it in our own strength, we're going to miss that mark, and that, that's what sin is, is missing the mark. Whenever we do things in our own strength, we're not going to hit that target. We're not going to hit that chief aim. When we try to do things in our own mind, whether it's keep the law or do more good than bad, like most people view the final outcome of when we meet God, that God's somehow going to, you know, grade us on a, on a scale. Oh, Henry, you know, you did 500 more things than you did wrong. For me, it'd probably be one. No, oh, I'd be in the minus. Never mind. I need grace. And I have a feeling you guys need grace and mercy as well. I have been crucified, Paul says. It's about identifying with that, guys. It's about identifying with the crucified Christ, his death. It's about dying to ourselves so that Christ can live through us. Galatians 5, 24 says, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. It's about identifying with the fact that Christ died for us. Galatians 6, 14, But God forbid that I should boast except in what? In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We're supposed to be in the world, but not allow the world to be in us. And that's one of the problems that we have to deal with as a church. Why? Because we're trying to do things in our own strength. Because we're not allowing God to work in and through us. It's about dying with Christ so that we can really live. The truth, guys, is that our sin, it makes us sick. What do we say when someone that was suffering passes away? What's that one thing that people tell us to try to comfort us, especially if it's a loved one or someone that we love? What do they say? Well, they're no longer suffering, right? In some sense, as believers, sin makes us sick. the The accusation of the law then kills us. But if we join in Christ's death, and we're healed, we're resurrected. We fight not for victory, but from victory. Spurgeon once said, and I've been told I look like that guy, he says, I'm dead. The law has killed me, cursed me, slain me. I am therefore free from its power, because in my surety I have borne the curse. And in the person of my substitute, with a capital S, the whole that the law could do by the way of condemnation has been executed upon me, for I am crucified with Jesus said in Matthew 16, 25, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will what? will find it. He's not talking about a physical death. He's talking about true life. He's talking about a spiritual death. Death that takes place when we identify with his death. We don't have time right now, but but man, read Colossians 2, 11 through 14. That's exactly what it talks about. Read, read Romans 12, 1 through two where it says I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercy of, of God that, that you live or that you present your bodies a living sacrifice the only way that we can do it is, is successfully is if we let God do it through us I believe that's how Paul truly lived when he died think about what Paul did what God did through Paul very two-thirds of the new testament 14 new testament churches were planted by him he was an incredible vessel of God apostle to the Gentiles example to the Jews why because he had considered himself reckoned just like Jesus considered himself reckoned on our behalf I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me That's not trust in us that would be foolish Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Let's live life. Let's walk in light of that. Let's identify not with I, but with Him. Because He proves His love for us by loving us and giving Himself for us. Paul, I believe, with all my heart, identified with that. And because He did, He truly lived. He lives an abundant life. And I believe He's truly living now as we speak because He places trust in Christ. Someone said something to the effect, but I really like it to to close this message. He says, the surrendered life will yield an exchange life when we live a trusting life. The surrendered life will yield an exchange life when we live a trusting life. Sometimes we don't want to give our lives to God because we know that things are going to change, but we don't realize that they're going to change for the better. If there's anyone here that says, you know what, tomorrow or one day, one day I'll do it. One day I'll get my things in order. I would say you don't, you don't understand the message of the gospel. You don't understand that a surrendered life will yield an exchange life. And the exchange rate that Christ gives us is way better than the best. Of you. Okay? It's way better. As long as we live a trusting.